0: This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 24, The Heidegger Controversy. So today's lecture brings together a whole host of characters you've already met in previous lectures. In some ways, it's the hardest lecture of the semester I give because the tone is so important. And I, I try to be more controlled and less ironic and sarcastic than usual. Um, there's a lot of different moving pieces and there's a lot of different characters but you've met them already. And it's a complicated story or a series of stories I'm gonna to try to interweave today and I will try to do it fairly systematically. Um, So, Theodor Adorno, the Frankfurt School thinker we've met, wrote after the Second World War, poetry, to write poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. Famous controversial statement. The person who persuaded him to change his mind was Paul Salon a Jewish poet born in 1920 from a place called Chernovitz, which today is Chernivtsi in Ukraine. Um, He was a a German-speaking Romanian Jew, a Holocaust survivor, the child of parents who did not survive. Um, He had an amazing array of languages including of native languages at his disposal, Yiddish, Romanian, Russian, German, French, English, Ukrainian, and he chose after the war to continue to write in German. Um, His most famous poem, which I think I brought up in a previous class, is called "Todesfuge," Death Fugue. which goes, schwarze milk der frue, vertrinken sie abends, vertrinken sie mittags und morgens, trinken sie nachts, vertrinken und trinken. Black milk of daybreak, we drink it at evening, we drink it at midday and morning, we drink it at night, we drink and we drink. This is a very famous translation by John Felschreiner. There have been many translations of this poem. The refrain of this poem is, death is a master from Germany. And Ceylon spoke about German after the Second World War as both Muttersprache and Mordersprache. Um, so both the mother tongue and the murderer's tongue. Um. After the war, Ceylon began reading Heidegger. In 1966 or 1967, there are disagreements about the date, Salon, who by then was already famous, gave a poetry reading in Freiburg, where Heidegger lived. And Heidegger, who was an admirer of Salon's poetry, attended the reading. And afterwards, Heidegger invited Salon back to his hut in the Black Forest, in Totenauberg, and there is a guest book there that the guest who made the hike out to the hut signed. And Salon signed the guest book with the phrase, in the hut's book, glancing towards the well's star, in the hope of a word to come. Meet einer Hoffnung auf ein kommendes Wort im Herzen. They then set off on a walk together. A week later, Salon writes a poem about this visit to Heidegger in which he wonders about this guest book. Whose name, he wonders, did it record before mine? And he repeats, today, the hope, thinking of a coming, of a word to come. We don't know what they said to each other on that walk. We do know that three or four years later, in Paris, Salon threw himself into the Seine River, committing suicide. So why is Salon's visit to Heidegger so meaningful? And why have so many people spent so much time since then thinking about it? So this involves going back at least half a century. In 1916, during the First World War, Husserl is offered the chair of philosophy at the University of Freiburg. He moves during the First World War from Göttingen, where he had a whole circle of students around him, dispersed by the war, to Freiburg. Um, only two of his students followed him at that time because they were unable to take part in the war for different reasons. One of them was Edith Stein. Um, one of them was the Paul garden. Edith Stein, who had been working as a Red Cross nurse with German soldiers, now waiting to be called up again, goes to Freiburg, begins to work on her dissertation on Einfühlung, on empathy. And she also works as Husserl's assistant, which is a kind of heroic task because Husserl is just generally impossible to work with. Um, Heidegger is in Freiburg then, also studying. He comes from Catholic theology um, but he has recently met a Protestant woman named Elfrida whom he marries and then turns away from Catholicism um, and begins working with Husserl as well and is friendly with Husserl with Edith Stein. Um, They go for a walk in the woods and talk about philosophy. Heidegger is moving at that time away from Catholicism just as Edith Stein is moving towards it. In May 1917, as he's working more and more closely with Husserl during the war, Heidegger writes to his wife that he cannot accept Husserl's phenomenology. He cannot embrace it, he writes, quote, because in its approach and accordingly in its goal, it is too narrow and bloodless and because such an approach cannot be made absolute. Life is too rich and too great. In March 1918, Heidegger left Freiburg for military training. Husserl was very enthusiastic about this new student of his and offered his fullest support. He writes to Heidegger, Hopefully, the war will not continue for much longer after the glorious victories in the West. You can return to your difficult problems with even more vigor, and I will gladly do everything on my part to bring you back in meteoress and to to make you better understand these matters by doing philosophy together. May this time during this military service, as I firmly hope, be a blessing for you do give me the pleasure of occasionally sending me some news. The next summer, after the war has ended in 1919, Heidegger tells his wife that he believes he has already gone beyond Husserl in his own philosophical thinking. But for reasons of his career and for his hopes of obtaining an academic chair at the university in Freiburg, he has to pretend to go along with phenomenology. He has to play the role that Husserl wants him to play, he writes to Elfrida. Simply, he says, to support us financially. Husserl doesn't notice this, but Edith Stein does. She writes to Roman Ingarden. Garden, Heidegger enjoys Husserl's absolute trust and he takes advantage of it to exert an influence on the students and to lead them away from Husserl's phenomenology. Everyone can see that, she tells in Garden, except the good master, except Husserl. In 1923, Heidegger is offered a position at the University in Marburg and he leaves Freiburg. The following year, 1924, An 18-year-old Jewish girl from Konigsberg, which today is Russian Kaliningrad, named Hannah Arendt goes from Konigsberg to Marburg to study philosophy with Heidegger. He was a mesmerizing lecturer, and she was a brilliant student. She came to see him one day during the first semester during his office hours, and Heidegger at once fell in love with the young student from Konigsberg. At the time, she was 18, he was 35, and married with two children. In February 1925, he writes to her, Dear Hannah, why is love rich beyond all other possible human experiences and a sweet burden to those seized in its grasp? the other's presence suddenly breaks into our life. No soul can come to terms with that. A human fate gives itself over to another human fate, and the duty of pure love is to keep this giving as alive as it was on the first day. The following month in March, he writes to her, when a storm rages outside the cabin, I remember our storm as I walk on the quiet path along the lawn or during a break I daydream about the young girl who in a raincoat her hat low over her quiet large eyes entered my office for the first time and slowly and shyly gave a brief answer to each question and then I transposed the image to the last day of the semester And only then do I know that life is history. I love you still. The following year in 1926, Arendt decided to leave Marburg and go to Heidelberg to study with Heidegger's friend, the philosopher Karl Jaspers, to whom she grows close. That same year, Heidegger retreated to his hut, to Totenauberg in the Black Forest the symbol of the solitary life of the philosopher, where he wrote Being in Time. In 1926, as Heidegger had isolated himself and was writing, Husserl wrote to him and said, I am happy to see that you are committed to the work through which you will become who you are and with which, as you well know, You have already begun fulfilling your own being as a philosopher. Nobody believes in you more firmly than I. And I am also convinced that in the end, no resentment you might feel will be able to throw you off the track. Nothing can divert you from the importance of doing what you alone can do. On eight April nineteen twenty six, he brought Husserl a manuscript wrapped in flowers and wrote, Dedicated to Edmund Husserl in friendship and admiration. Totnailbergen baden, Black Forest, eight April nineteen twenty six was Husserl's birthday. That was the manuscript of Being in Time. In April 1928, Heidegger came to Heidelberg to see Han Arendt, and then he broke off the affair, decisively. Arendt afterwards wrote to him that for her, to live means to love him, that she loves him now as she had on the very first day. She was 22 years old, and she signed the letter, and if god choose i shall but love thee better after death that same year 1928 husserl stepping down and retiring told heidegger that he had succeeded in having him appointed to his chair of philosophy in freiburg in 1929 the young philosopher emmanuel levinas Um, from Kalnus, what is today Lithuania, who went through Kharkiv, then Kharkov, um, and to France before coming to Freiburg, went to Freiburg to study now with both Husserl and Heidegger. And he writes in 1929, his chair was passed on to Martin Heidegger, Husserl's chair was passed on to Martin Heidegger, Husserl's most original disciple, whose name is now the glory of Germany. A man of exceptional intellectual power. His teaching and his works are the best proof of the fecundity of the phenomenological method. Already, his considerable success gives evidence to his extraordinary prestige. To be sure of having a seat at his lectures, which took place in one of the largest rooms of the university at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I had to occupy it by 10 in the morning at the latest. So what happens next at the University of Freiburg is you know perhaps the most wrenching episode in, in the intellectual history of 20th century Europe and I will try to take you through it carefully. That year 1929 Hannah Arendt married Gunther Stern, who had earned his doctorate in philosophy under Husserl and subsequently went to study with Heidegger in Marburg. At one point, Gunther Stern was invited to a seminar at the hut in Totenberg. Afterwards, there was a group of Heidegger students who, together with his wife, Elfrida, were hiking back through the Black Forest to Freiburg. By that time, Elfrieda. Heidegger's wife was already a Nazi sympathizer. She was walking with Stern. She was holding his hand. She was very impressed by him. And she began to talk to him of the Nazis, of the Nazi party, and urged him to join. And he looked at her and said, look at me. Then you'll see that I belong to those whom you wish to exclude. On January 23, 1933, Husserl invited Heidegger to a celebration of the 50th anniversary of Husserl's receiving of his doctorate. And Husserl accepted the invitation and they celebrated together. In March 1933, the Nazis came to power. Hannah Arendt then began to hear rumors that Heidegger was excluding Jews from his seminars, that he'd been avoiding his Jewish students. Heidegger wrote back to her and he denied what he called this slander and he added, and above all, it cannot touch my relationship to you. That April, by virtue of a new Nazi law, um, Husserl's son, the surviving son, because the youngest one had been killed fighting for Germany in the First World War. But the older son, who was a professor of law at the University of Kiel, was removed from his position as a non-Aryan. Husserl was a philosopher and a German patriot who believed in a singular universal truth. He and his wife, Malvina, had converted to Protestantism half a century earlier, um, they did not identify as Jews. On the 21st of April, shortly after this law was enacted that resulted in the exclusion of Jews from these positions including professorships, Heidegger accepted the rectorship of the University of Freiburg. Eight days later, on April 29th, Alfreda Heidegger, Heidegger's wife, wrote to Malvina Husserl, um, Husserl's wife, and said, I'm writing also in the name of my husband. I I, I feel obliged to write a few words to you in these, these difficult weeks. We would both like to tell you both that today, as always, we remain in unchanged gratitude towards you for everything you've done. If my husband had to take a different path away from your philosophy and his own philosophy, that doesn't mean he will ever forget everything you did for him when he was your student. That was on April 29th. On May 1st, 1933, Heidegger joined the Nazi party. On May 27th, 1933, Husserl gave an address called the Rectoral Address, which was the inaugural lecture that a new rector, like the new university president, gives to the university community. The title of the address was The Self-Assertion of the German University. And I'll, I'll read you some passages from it here. Assuming the rectorship means committing oneself to leading this university spiritually and intellectually. The students and teachers who constitute the rector's following will awaken and gain strength only through being truly and collectively rooted in the essence of the German university. This essence will attain clarity, rank, and power. However, only when the leaders are, first and foremost, and at all times, themselves led by the inexorability of that spiritual mission which impresses onto the fate of the German folk, the stamp of their history. So this word folk, which I put on your handout, will come up and it's going to refer to people in a singular collective, kind of lofty sense. And the word "Volksgemeinschaft," a kind of ethnic national community of the people, will come up. The will to essence of the German university, Heidegger said, is the will to science as the will to the historical and spiritual mission of the German folk as a folk that knows itself in the state. Science and German fate must come to power at the same time in the will to essence and if our own most existence itself stands on the threshold of a great transformation, if it is true what the last German philosopher to passionately seek God, Friedrich Nietzsche said, God is dead. If we must take seriously the abandonment of man today in the midst of being, what then does this apply for science? The first bond is the one that binds to the ethnic and national community, to the Volksgemeinschaft. It entails the obligation to share fully, both passively and actively, in the toil, the striving, and the abilities of all estates and members of the folk. And the spiritual world of a folk is the power that comes from preserving at the most profound level the forces that are rooted in the soil and blood of a folk. The power to arouse most inwardly and to shake most extensively the folk's existence. It is our will that our folk fulfill its historical mission. Now, one of the things you see here is not that Heidegger is speaking about Jews or about anti-Semitism or about extermination. He's speaking a lot about will and a lot about folk and the German folk. And you see here a lot of the roots of Nazism and Romanticism. The idea of will. It's not I think, it's I will. As a rector, he urges his students to become aggressively involved in the struggle of the entire folk for itself. Let your loyalty and your will to follow, he told them, be daily and hourlyly strengthened. Let your courage grow without ceasing so that you will be able to make the sacrifices necessary to save the essence of our folk and to elevate its innermost strength in the state. And then he goes on and talks about Hitler. And Hitler at this time, Adolf Hitler, is being referred to just as the leader, and the word for leader is "defer" in German. So "defer" alone, Heidegger says, is the present and future German reality and its law. Learn to know ever more deeply From now on, every single thing demands decision. And every action, responsibility. So you see here the existentialist motifs of decisionism, of responsibility. Less than a year later, in February 1934, Heidegger resigned from the rectorship. The following year, somewhat disillusioned in 1935, he gave a series of lectures titled, What is Metaphysics? And in these lectures, he says, what today is offered around as the philosophy of national socialism, of Nazism, but which does not have the least to do with the inner truth and grandeur of this movement, namely with the confrontation between planetary techniques and 19th century man leads to these fishing expeditions in the murky waters of values and totalities. And that was 1935. Now that same year, Husserl is invited to Prague um, by the last of his dazzling students, a young Czech philosopher named Jan Patochka. He was born in 1907. He's a very young man at this time. And he had come to Freiburg in 1933 and studied with both Husserl, who was then professor emeritus, privately and also attended Heidegger's lectures. Potoczka, when he returned to Prague, helped to found a philosophical circle of Prague, which kind of ran parallel to the Prague linguistic circle and there was a lot of cross-fertilation and overlap. And Roman Jakobsen, um, together with Jan Patochka and some of their colleagues, then arranged for an invitation to bring Husserl in 1935 to Prague to give the lectures he could no longer give as a non-Aryan in Nazi Germany who was excluded from his own university. In 1935 in Prague, Husserl gave lectures that would later become his last great book, The Crisis of the European Sciences. And there he says that, in a state of despair, that if the forces of irrationalism had risen, if Europe was now dangling on the abyss of barbarism, It was because rationalism had proved too thin, too superficial. It was because the reason of enlightenment had been interpreted without enough depth. It was because there was a failure to ground objectivity and subjectivity. He deeply believed that if only people could see that yes we can, yes we can get to absolute truth and epistemological clarity, that the phenomenological method could get us to truth, that you could have a deeper reason, you could have an objectivity that was grounded in subjectivity. That was the thing that would save Europe from the irrationalism that was leading to barbarism. He truly believed at this moment as the Nazis had come to power that only the phenomenological reduction could save Europe, only an understanding that we can get to absolute truth. By this time, Being in Time was being republished, now with the dedication to Husserl removed. In 1938, Husserl died and Heidegger and his wife failed to attend the funeral. I now want to take you back to Edith Stein. She was working as Husserl's assistant, heroically trying to gather his thousands of pages of incomprehensible notes written in an illegible shorthand into a publishable form. He was a difficult person to work with. Um, She eventually stepped down. Heidegger stepped into her place. She wanted to do um, her habilitation degree, which is a kind of second doctorate that you do in the European academic system in order to become a university professor. So the text I gave you earlier this semester on empathy was from the doctorate she did with Husserl, but she needed to do a second one in order to be eligible for a full university position. And that was when Husserl wrote her the letter of recommendation that said that if it were appropriate that university positions be open to women, then she would have his highest recommendation. Um, The short version of that story is that she's not accepted anywhere for habilitation. Perhaps because she's a woman, perhaps because she's a Jew, perhaps it's overdetermined. She does convert to Catholicism and she goes to teach at, at a Catholic school. In 1933, when Hitler comes to power, she decides to join a Carmelite convent, which is a very extreme monastic form. You know, and involves a fairly extreme degree of isolation from the surrounding world. So once she is in this convent, you know, as a converted Jew, a Carmelite nun, her friends can visit her, but they can only speak to her through this iron grating. Um, um, In 1939, when the war breaks out, the other nuns, Um, and clergy in the monastery evacuate Edith Stein to a kind of sister monastery, a Carmelite convent in in Echt in the Netherlands, hoping that, you know, as a Jew by by birth, by race, she will be safe there. She was not. Um, On August 2nd, 1942, the Gestapo... Hitler's military police came to the Carmelite convent in the Netherlands looking for the Jew they had heard was there, Edith Stein, and told her she was to report within five minutes. Um, She was put on, on a transport and a few days later was gassed to death in Auschwitz in August 1942. Heidegger wrote the next year, the planet is in flames, the essence of man is out of joint, only from the Germans can there come a world historical reflection, if that is, they find and preserve their German-ness. Hitler, Heidegger, while he stepped down from the rectorship, remained in the Nazi party under Hitler's leadership until the very end of the war, until 1945. After the war, after Hitler had committed suicide in the bunker, Nazi Germany had surrendered unconditionally. Germany was then occupied by the Allied forces the case of Ma- Martin Heidegger came before Freiburg's University's denazification committee. The committee wrote to Karl Jaspers, you know, who was one of a handful of German intellectuals who remained from the beginning to the end, decisively and outspokenly anti-Nazi. Jaspers had not spoken to Heidegger since 1933 he told the committee. They were no longer friends, Jaspers says, and Jaspers had hoped to remain silent. But since the committee had formally requested that Jaspers evaluate Heidegger's denazification file, Jaspers felt obliged to speak. On December 22nd, 1945, Jaspers wrote to the committee, you are correct in referring to this affair as complicated. He described Heidegger as a philosopher who, quote, stands at a remove from true science, combining the seriousness of nihilism with the mystagogy of a magician. In the torrent of his language, he is occasionally able, in a clandestine and remarkable way, to strike at the core of philosophical thought. Heidegger's talents, Jaspers told the committee, were perhaps unique in all of contemporary Germany. He should be allowed to continue his work as a philosopher. But, Jaspers said, he should not be allowed to teach. Not now, not yet. The students were too vulnerable. They hadn't yet learned to think for themselves. They had to be protected. Several months later, Jaspers wrote what is perhaps his most famous text called Die Schuldfrage," The Question of Guilt, um, which is translated into English as The Question of German Guilt, which is a text I have found myself coming back to quite often during this gruesome war that Russia's unleashed against Ukraine. And Jaspers writes in that text, What makes it worse is that so many people do not really want to think. They want only slogans and obedience. They ask no questions and give no answers except by repeating drilled-in phrases. Thousands in Germany thought, Jasper wrote, thousands in Germany sought or at least found death in battling the regime, most of them anonymously. We, survivors, those of us who lived, We did not seek it. We did not seek death. We did not go out into the streets when our Jewish friends were led away. We did not scream until we too were destroyed. We preferred to stay alive on the feeble, if logical, ground that our death could not have helped anyone. We are guilty of being alive. There is no other way, Jaspers wrote, to realize truth for the German than purification out of the depth of consciousness of guilt. The Denazification Commission ruled that Heidegger would be banned from teaching for some four or five years. Around the time the band was listed, In February 1950, Hannah Arendt, who had by then long been living and teaching in the United States, returned to Germany and decided to visit Heidegger. Um, She wrote to him and came to visit both Heidegger and Elfrida in their home. Elfrida, it seems, was waiting for Arendt to apologize for having had an affair with her husband. <laughs> Arendt, it seems, was waiting for Elfrida to apologize for having been a Nazi <laughs> while Arendt was a Jew. Um, I, I unfortunately was not a fly on the wall be- on that, <laughs> during that meeting, which I very much regret. But what we do know is that it seems neither one of those two apologies was forthcoming. Um, A day or two later, after their visit, on the 8th of February, Heidegger sent a letter to Arendt. Now, I just want you to listen to this quote and just absorb the fact that this was one of the greatest minds of the 20th century, and then just kind of listen to the level of total cluelessness you're about to hear. Um, In no way did my wife want to infringe on the fate of our love. All she wanted to do was free this gift of the taint that had necessarily marked it because of my silence. This silence was not simply an abuse of her trust. In fact, it was because I knew that my wife would not only understand but also affirm the joyousness and richness of our love as a gift of faith that I pushed her trust aside. I'll just let you all you know, meditate on that. Um, Hannah Arendt responded the following day. She wrote to him, this evening, this morning, are the confirmation of an entire life. I should add that I did not, of course, remain silent just as a matter of discretion, but also as a matter of pride, and also as a matter of love for you. The next day, Hannah Arendt wrote to Elfrida. This is quite remarkable. You see, she told Elfrida, when I left Marburg, I was quite determined never to love a man again. And then later I married, somehow indifferent as to whom I was marrying, without being in love. Please believe one thing. What was and surely still is between us was never personal. It really causes one to question the meaning of personal. (laughs) What was and surely still is between us was never personal, at least not that I'm aware of. You never made a secret of your convictions, after all, nor do you today, not even to me. Now as a result of those convictions, a conversation is almost impossible. And now in 1950, you know, more than a quarter century after they first met, Heidegger begins to write poetry again for Han Arendt. He sends her a poem called The Girl From Abroad the stranger even to yourself she is, mountain of joy, sea of sorrow, desert of desire, dawn of arrival. In April 1950, Heidegger wrote to Arendt, Elfrida returns your greetings and kiss with a happy heart and is glad you returned home safely. Say hello to your dear husband for me. Hannah, all the flowers of the front garden Elfrida tends, narcissists and tulips and the flowering cherry trees say hello and hello. A couple years later, in 1955, Origins of Totalitarianism appears in German translation, ending with the sentiment that there are crimes that can neither be punished nor forgiven. I want to spend the last few minutes talking to you about forgiveness. Herbert Marcuse, the Frankfurt School philosopher, the author of Eros and Civilization, also a German Jew, who also studied with Heidegger, was also in the United States after the war. In August 1947, he wrote to Heidegger, and he said, Marcuse said, You told me that you fully disassociated yourself from the Nazi regime as of 1934 and that you were observed by the Gestapo. I will not doubt your word. But the fact remains that in 1933 you identified yourself so strongly with the regime that today in the eyes of many you are considered as one of its strongest intellectual proponents. Your own speeches, writings, and treatises from this period are proof thereof. You have never publicly retracted them, not even after 1945. Many of us have long awaited a statement from you, a statement that would clearly and finally free you from such identification, a statement that honestly expresses your current attitude about the events that have occurred. But you have never uttered such a statement. At least it has never emerged from the private sphere. I and very many others have admired you as a philosopher. We've learned an infinite amount from you. But we cannot separate Heidegger the philosopher from Heidegger the man, for it contradicts your own philosophy. A philosopher can be deceived regarding political matters in which case he'll openly acknowledge his error, but he cannot be deceived about a regime that has killed millions of Jews merely because they were Jews, that made terror into an everyday phenomenon, that turned everything that pertains to the ideas of spirit, freedom, and truth into its bloody opposite. Marcuse goes on to say, that he is sending Heidegger a package from the states, and this is a time of extreme food shortages in in post-war Germany, Um, that he is sending this package even though his friends have tried to persuade him. My friends, Marcuse writes, have accused me of helping a man who identified with the regime that sent millions of my co-religionists to the gas chambers. Nothing can counter this argument. I excuse myself in the eyes of my own conscience by saying that I am sending a package to a man from whom I learned philosophy from 1928 to 1932. I am myself aware that it is a poor excuse. Heidegger responded in 1948. Concerning 1933, I expected from National Socialism a spiritual renewal of life in its entirety a reconciliation of social antagonisms, and a deliverance of Western Dasein from the dangers of communism. You are entirely correct that I failed to provide a public, readily comprehensible counter-declaration. It would have been the end of both me and my family. On this point, Jasper said, that we remain alive is our guilt. Heidegger never actually asked for forgiveness, but Arendt forgives him. In 1960, in a letter she doesn't send, she describes Heidegger as the man to whom I remained faithful and unfaithful, and both in love. How does she forgive him? She ends origins of totalitarianism with a comment about totalitarian regimes having discovered that there are crimes which men can neither punish nor forgive. In 1958, in a book that she silently, she says, dedicates to Heidegger, she writes about forgiveness. She says, the possible, the only possible redemption from the predicament of irreversibility, of being unable to do what one has done, though one did not and could not have known what one was doing, is the faculty of forgiving. Now Derrida, who had responded, with a deconstructionist analysis of Paul DeMond's anti-Semitic wartime text. Now, over a decade later, in a 1997 essay on forgiveness, responds again. And this time, he says, to forgive must mean to forgive precisely the unforgivable if it is to mean anything at all. From that, he says, comes the aporia. Forgiveness forgives only the unforgivable. That is to say that forgiveness must announce itself as impossibility itself. Heidegger really only speaks publicly once, directly, about his Nazism. That's in an interview he gives in 1966 to the German journal Der Spiegel, and he gives it on the condition that it not be published until after his death. Um, It's published immediately after his death a decade later in 1976. Perhaps, he says, Nazism was wrong, but the crisis of Western civilization remained the post-Nietzschean crisis of a world without God. Only, Heidegger says, a God can save us. And our job now, our task, is the preparation of this readiness of keeping oneself open for the arrival or the absence of God. At that point, when it was published in 1976, Jan Patochka's student smuggled into him a copy of that Der Spiegel interview and asked him to respond. And Jan Patochka, who was a Czech who lived through the Nazi occupation of his homeland, said, Of course, today in 19 19- 76, it was clear to all of them what Nazism had been. The question, Patochka asks is whether that was and could have been clear to a German in 1933, and whether a German in 1933, in certain circumstances, might have had no choice other than to try it out. It's extraordinarily generous here. In the last minute, let me, let me tell you this. In the Hutz book, glancing towards the well star in the hope of a word to come," wrote Paul Salon, but the word never came, not during Salon's life and not during Heidegger's own. The Heidegger controversy is not the controversy about whether or not Heidegger was a Nazi. We know Heidegger was a Nazi. The Heidegger controversy is about what that means for how we read Heidegger. Um, What does it mean for how we read Han Arendt? A philosophical argument has been made that because Heidegger's idea of Dasein as being always already in the world creates a subject that can no longer be cleanly and purely disarticulated from the object because it is always already thrown into the world, essentially puts us on a slippery slope towards the dissolution of the subject entirely, be it in the Volksgemeinschaft or be it in the gas chambers. The question about what Heidegger meant for Arendt's work and what Arendt meant for Heidegger's work remains with us. Um, The question of what forgiveness meant remains with us. To the day she died, she loved him. Theirs was one of the great love affairs of the 20th century and a testimony to the extraordinary complexity of human relationships. Let me tell you one last thing, in 1988, Derrida was giving a seminar in Germany, at which my later professor, Hans Gumbrecht was at. And a student in that seminar, it was a seminar about Heidegger, and a student in that seminar said, Professor Derrida, you're a Jew, and Heidegger was a Nazi. What, what do you make of that? And Derrida said, there's no debate about Heidegger having been a Nazi. We know he was a Nazi. The question, the real question, is something else. Would he have been the greatest philosopher of the 20th century without that ineffable something in his thought that was precisely the thing that brought him so close to Nazism? Was it precisely that thing that made him so drawn to Nazism, that made his thought so dazzling? Um, and when my, my own professor Hans Gumbreck told that story in a lecture about the role of the university He says the university must exist because there must be a place where we can pose even that question. I'll see you on Wednesday. Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.